You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, say hello to the people. Hello, people. This is a special episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, Ben. It is. It's sort of an ain't shit going on week, so we are going to do... Uh, what, what has become sort of a tradition on this show, we're going to spend it doing an all-questions-considered episode of the show, which means it's all listener mail all the time. And for this particular show, uh, we're going to open it up to our uh, Patreon sponsors. They're going to have the, uh, the first swing at the, at the baseball here to get, a, to get a question on the show. That's right, and a lot of questions did come in. Chad, you want to guess how many patrons we're sitting at right now? Uh, 620. 643, my man. That's almost 650. Tantalizingly close to 650, in fact. And see, we opened it up uh, so that we would consider those questions first. Uh, not that we'll, you know, refuse to consider any questions from any non-patrons, but, you know, you're a friend of the podcast. You deserve some first consideration there, and we got a lot of good questions that way. But also, because we want to make sure that we get to all the patron questions we possibly can, we're going to do a little something different formatting-wise here. Yeah, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do our normal hour-long, all-questions-considered episode available to absolutely everybody on God's green earth, where we answer as many of these questions as we can in about an hour. Then, the questions we don't get to, those will be in a supplemental podcast to be released on our Patreon site, available to patrons only. Patrons of any pay tier, $5, $10, those will be available to absolutely everybody uh, who is a patron of the Co-Main Event Podcast. But if you're not a patron then you'll just have to wonder what was said on that supplemental edition of the podcast. Patreon Power Hour. Patreon.com slash co-main event. You'll find it under posts. We'll put the audio file or a link, but probably an audio file, just right in there. And, uh, yeah, that way you can you can get a hefty dose of the CME this week if you're a patron. When are we going to do that? It's Wednesday? Let's say Wednesday. Sure. We'll do it Wednesday. We'll spread it out a little bit. Try for Wednesday. But, Chad, this is this is also a special episode. In a way, It's it's kind of a the eve of a special episode we're looking at episode 299 right here yep as we speak recording episode 299 which means god willing and the creek don't rise next week will be episode 300 yay, yay. what are we gonna do hats party hats uh we that just goes great on radio. you know what i feel like we did the hats thing to death okay in the last that's few true weeks that's true uh maybe we should solicit uh ideas from the people at home for how we could celebrate episode 300 that's right that's a good idea. I'm going to go ahead and specify non-drinking game-related ideas. That's an interesting choice by you. I'm going to say anything involving substance abuse. Like, just mail us. How about this? Mail us unidentifiable prescription pills. We'll take them on air and then just kind of describe what happens. As the guy who checks the co-main event podcast P.O. Box, I'm going to have to insist that you don't do that. Uh, 
they better send us some ideas, though, or otherwise we're just going to record a normal show, and then right at the end we'll just say, oh, this was episode 300. Yeah, don't think we won't do that because we've done I, it before. I think that's what we did for episode 200. Anyway, we already wasted five minutes here, so... Another thing we should mention, though. Okay, mention it quick. Okay. Get the lead out. A new special thing that's going to be available uh, for, for patrons of the Coman Event Podcast, and this one, being very special, will only be available to the 5 and $10 pay tiers. Whoa. But... Class war. The Friday... Before UFC 223. And UFC 223, the date is April 7th, so we're talking Friday, April 6th. My son's birthday. Hey, happy birthday, hey, Juno. He'll be turning one, so I don't think he'll, uh, don't think he'll feel yeah, left he'll, out. He'll harbor resentment over this for the rest of his life. But what we're going to do is Chad and I are going to get together probably right about the end time of those morning weigh-ins that the UFC does before an event. We'll get together, and we'll have a special short streaming edition of the podcast to discuss the fights just right beforehand uh you know khabib nurmagomedov is going to be weighing in that friday morning so we might end up having a lot to discuss then uh but yeah it'll be a little video edition it'll be streaming on the patreon site we're going to take questions Sure, questions can, from the people sure they can they can if they're joining us in real time you'll be able to join us in real time or you'll just be able to come back and watch later if you're a patron uh also here's what i suggest since it's a weigh-in show Let's get the bathroom scale out. Let's weigh in. See, I got something that might change your mind. What's that? I'm going to bring pastries. Okay. Because this is going to be the brunch of champions. Okay, the brunch of champions. I, the uh, co-main event podcast. So. Can I weigh in pre-pastry? I think you better. All right. I think you better weigh Otherwise, in Otherwise, I might the need a towel, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not holding that towel for you, man. <laughs> You're going to have to get somebody else to hold that. Look, there's enough transients in your neighborhood. I can find some people to hold a towel. Oh, it won't be hard. <laughs> and they'll do it for a pastry, let me tell you. <laughs> Should we get this started now Let's since we already started. we got all the housekeeping yeah. things out of the way? First question this week comes to us from Joe Kender, Patreon subscriber. Joe Kender, he writes, since ain't shit going on right now, I wanted to ask you guys a hypothetical question. How do you think a fight between Tim Sylvia and Crow Cop would have gone if they had been matched up right after Crow Cop's open, win, open weight Grand Prix win in 2006? At the time, Tim was fresh off beating Andre Arlovsky for the second time in a fairly forgettable fight. Please discuss how you feel the main Iac would have fared. Thanks! He gets murdered. Yeah, he'd get killed by Prime Crow Cop, right? Especially, wait, where is this hypothetical fight taking place? Is it in Japan? Joe Kenner doesn't specify, but it's got to be in Japan, right? Just to make it just to make it all fun, fun and games. Yeah, because we got to talk about if we're if we're talking about a geared up Crow Cop here. That's my assumption. Coming off that open weight Grand Prix, I'm thinking Crow Cop with the traps coming out of his ears. He's looking he's looking thick, solid, tight. If you know what I mean. He's going out there and he's going to just kick Tim Sylvia's legs to absolute shreds. Yeah, I don't he's think put him away. I don't think Tim Sylvia's step step jab offense would. Go off too well against Mirko Krokop back in the day. I got one better for you, though. Mirko Krokop versus Tim Sylvia tomorrow. What? Who wins? Do you want me to speculate what kind of shape Tim Sylvia's in right now? Is that what you want? Yeah, I mean, I guess we're just, we would be speculating. Uh, as far as we know, he's still maybe working as a police officer. I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning a... So there must a... be some kind of physical standard for him to meet. Well, right? come on. Have you, have you seen the police officers in this town? I know that there is a a severe physical standard that they have to meet, and I can't believe that you would insinuate otherwise. Severe. I've 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 seen them in the morning in the coffee shop. They all get together down there at the coffee shop I go to sometimes, and let's say uh, it can't be too severe. I'll say that. Who would win? Old ass Crow Cop versus potentially out of shape Tim Sylvia Crow, tomorrow. Crow Cop's in camp, man. He's getting ready to fight Roy Nelson. He wins this fight. You think he would still win tomorrow? I think you're probably right. Yeah. Plus, um, I don't know. Been following the whole. 
situations going on with Crow Cop and Bellator and how there was a question about whether he was even eligible to fight. And then they said, don't worry, we're going to drug test him. And then uh, Mike Mazzulli from the Mohegan tribe told Mark Raimondi of MMA Fighting that don't worry, he's going to go over there and test Crow Cop personally in Croatia. And he gave the date of when he's going to oh, be out there. Oh, good. He's going to be arriving by train to test Crow Cop after regulating an event in Hungary what? on like April 6th. What is this, an Agatha Christie novel? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Well, at least Crow Cop knows he's coming. Yeah. And you know what? We all know Crow Cop has lookouts at the local train station. <laughs> Kids on he's their bikes. He's watching the train station. When they see the, yeah. the testers come, are going to put out the cry and ride their bikes all the way to Crow Cop's here's, house. Here's the real twist. After he collects the sample, he presumably has to get back on the train and go back to wherever he came from, right? So that that's where the Agatha Christie mystery happens is when he has that sample and he's traveling back. Right. He loses his hat and then later associates of Mirko Krokop show up and they have his hat and they give it back to him and they say, Mr. Tester, if we can take your hat, what else can we take? <laughs> is that right? Is that how it goes well, down? Well, that's a first draft. We'll, we'll work on it. All right. Next question. Uh, next question comes from Ben Howell, who writes, I'll keep this brief. How much are we missing Joe Silva? UFC matchmaking gets a lot of well-deserved criticism, largely focused on its breakneck event schedule, but can some of this be attributed to the loss of the best matchmaker in the game? I think we are missing Joe Silva. I think we're missing a lot of things, a lot of uh, individuals in that UFC, uh, previous UFC power structure that maybe we didn't think we were going to miss quite as much as we ended up uh, missing them. The cogs and, in the machine that you don't think about while they're running smoothly? Right, what you might call the infrastructure of the U of the previous uh, UFC. Uh, and But Joe Silva might be the guy we miss the most. Do you think that that's true? I mean, not to disrespect Sean Shelby or Mick Maynard or anybody else who is doing the, the matchmaking because those guys are good and, and professionals and, and uh, seemingly likable dudes, but like Joe Silva seemed to have what we used to consider to be the UFC formula kind of wired, did he not? Yeah. I mean, I, he came up with it. Yeah. Well, I definitely I don't see how you can lose a guy like that and not miss him just because he had been at it for so long and just was a walking encyclopedia of MMA knowledge and knew exactly how that job worked. I also think one of the issues might be, to the extent that there is an issue with UFC matchmaking, is that uh, I heard a lot of managers talk about how this was a big job to ask two guys to do even when the two guys were joe silva and sean shelby and everybody agreed that they were very good at it and very competent and and that story i did on a few years ago where he talked to them one of the persistent themes that ended up coming back around is the just workaholic nature that that job uh, demands and how you know the, both of them had comical stories of attempting to take vacations and having it not end up being a vacation at all just because of the nature of the job and i've heard several managers in the past say like you know the ufc should give them more help it's too much to ask too few people to do this like this the demands of this job are just too great and so you take away a guy who's that experienced at it like yeah i, I can understand that you might suffer a little bit i also though wonder how much of it is that it seems the goals of the ufc as an organization have changed a little bit and that maybe they're asking for different things from the matchmakers. Yeah, that could be. One one uh, sign, this was a sign that I always took uh, of how influential and necessary Joe Silva was to the process, was that they let him do his job uh, from the East Coast. Yeah. He lived over there. Where was it, like South Carolina or I something think Virginia. like that? Virginia. Virginia. Uh, they did not require Joe Silva to like live in Las Vegas and work out of the, the UFC home office. Like He was, he was remotely... Uh, like telecommuting basically from Virginia, which is not something they let everybody do. No, I think he's like the only person they right. let do and it. And so basically Joe Silva 
Joe Silva was like, I'm going to work from Virginia. And they were like, yeah, okay. If it's the only way you'll do the job, then fine. You know, one, one uh, population of people who might not miss Joe Silva? Who's that? Fighters. Yeah, no, and that was another thing. When, I, when he was quitting and everybody knew, like, okay, here's when he's leaving. And I remember trying to do – and I think I mentioned this before – trying to do a story where I talked to a bunch of people, especially managers and people who had dealt with him a lot about what their recollections of Joe Silva were. And a lot of them were just like – you know, gave me these really boilerplate played answers. And I was like, really? What's up with that? And they're like, off the record, he's a prick. He's really difficult to deal with. And they rec- they weren't saying like he was a prick as a person, but just like in the, as- in the, the, the category that I have to deal with him in, in that capacity, he makes it really tough on you because that's his job. That's one of the things that makes him good at it from the UFC's perspective. But it also made them not feel all that sad to see him go. Next question this week comes to us from Sean Jeffrey. He writes, what are your thoughts of scaling MMA glove sizes similar to how they do in boxing for weight classes? Most normies complain that the lighter fighters don't have enough knockouts, yet they wear the same size gloves as the guys in the heavyweight division. That seems like it gives an unfair disadvantage to lighter fighters. Would this help solve the KO issue for lighter fighters should heavyweights have their glove size slightly increased? Oh. Is that really what we want is more like heavyweight fights that go to distance because they're not knocking each other out? I'm not so sure about that. 15 minutes slogs. 15 minutes of hell is what you're looking at there. Do you think that decreasing the size of the lighter weight gloves would like make for more knockouts? I don't – I mean they do do that in boxing but the gloves are already bigger in boxing so that there's a little more room to – like – I don't know how much you can really decrease the size. Right. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, like, does the MMA glove prevent a guy from getting knocked out? Because my my guess would be no. The, the what the MMA glove is doing, if it does anything, is like protecting your hand and the skin of your face from cuts. Yeah, I mean, there's the the smaller glove might lead to a few more knockouts, but I don't know if that's what's the, responsible for the smaller fighters not finishing as many fights. But I don't know. I mean, it is a, it's an interesting question that I've never heard broached before. Is that because boxing will do that? Will allow lighter fighters? And you will remember in the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight that was they wanted to use a lighter glove, I believe, than right. the weight class did, usually right? allows. Yeah, yeah, because they get to do absolutely anything they want when you're bringing in that much goddamn money. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. I've never heard any fighters ask for it. I don't know what that means. Uh, next question. This one comes from Jim Jennings. I can't believe that neither of you mentioned Paul Craig's amazing last-second triangle finish in London. He, for me, anyway, secures best comeback ever with the win, overtaking Boach versus Yukami, at, or Okami, and Yushin Okami, I believe, and must have the tightest triangle in the UFC because that baby was only on for maximum five seconds. He didn't have time to tighten it, and we all know that Dagestani dudes don't tap easily. Please give the man some shout-out credit. Yay! Yay! No, I mean it was a that was a great comeback because he was definitely losing that fight. He's the bear Jew, the bear Jew, out there pulling pulling this one out of his back pocket against Magomed Ankalev. Okay, but didn't I, I don't know if you even watched this fight since it was a fight pass event. No, it doesn't ring a bell. I mean, I saw that later that it happened that it had how it had happened was yeah Paul Craig like hail married it. And yeah, he did. He was definitely Doug, losing Doug Flutie style. The, the scorecards confirmed he'd lost the first two rounds. He'd lost the third one, arguably worse than he lost the first two. And he actually had some really good comments on it afterwards. And he has that awesome Scottish accent. We were like, I kind of understand, but I kind of don't, but either way, I don't care. Cause it's just so fun to listen to. Uh, I was surprised though, cause he put on that triangle, like shortly after he heard the 10 second clapper, then he throws up the triangle and if I'm the other guy and I know I'm winning by decision, 
I am going to make you choke me unconscious in that situation. Because yeah. there's a good chance that even if I'm unconscious, if I'm unconscious for a second or two before the ref realizes it, I can maybe make it to the end of the, the round, the end of the fight, hear that final horn, then they realize I'm unconscious, but maybe I still get the decision win that way. I was surprised to see, especially, you know, a tough-ass Dagestani. I was surprised, if, surprised to see him tap. If nothing else, it would at least create mass chaos when they realized you were unconscious yeah. after they stopped, after, like, the, the final horn sounded, because God knows nobody would know what the rules were supposed to be. So you would at least have, like, a 50-50 shot of still winning. Yeah. Right? Well, and I know, I mean, I've been in, like, a really tight triangle before where you're like, I've been in a really tight triangle before. I'll put you in a really tight triangle <laughs> right now. I'm What? Why? <laughs> well, you... You know, there is that – some people can put it on you really fast where you're just like, holy shit. Like I already I'm seeing the little uh, weird spots show up in my vision where I feel like darkness may be coming soon. But you're that close. You're that close. You just just hold on. I mean even if he chokes you out, it's a blood choke. It's not like it's going to be super dangerous for you to be choked out in that situation. Uh, it's easy, again, to sit here on the couch, literally right now on my couch, and say, oh, I would have made him choke me out. I mean that's a classic like, you know – armchair tough guy move to say but in that situation i don't know how you don't force the guy to choke you out next question this week comes to us from josh montgomery he writes what is some of your guys favorite walkout songs that fighters have used and what song would you guys pick to make the walk to if you were somehow offered anderson silva money to go out there and do the damn thing ben you got a song kicking around in your head for me or songs that i've appreciated a good walkout songs fighters have used. let's start with other fighters for starters <laughs> other fighters as opposed to us as opposed to yourself uh you know what actual fighters even though i don't care for the song michael bisping's use of that blur song that is, is good yeah and he's got the walk too that's right he's basically basically doing the vince mcmahon conor mcgregor walk before it was popularized yes i mean it's it's dialed down a little bit yeah but not too much and like it's just so associated with him at this point the crowd gets into it they sing along you hear it and you're like okay here comes Michael Bisping. Right. That's a good one. That's a great answer. Sandstorm, obviously, for uh, oh, yes. for Vanderlei. Uh, a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it was flat awesome when Matt Hughes would walk out to uh, Country Boy Can't Survive. Remember that? I do, but He'd I go, don't and then he feel kick, that strongly about it. he would it. kick somebody's ass every couple months. Pick him up, walk him around, slam him down. Yep. Like a bag of feet. It just fit. It was just right. It just felt right for Matt Hughes. It did. At the time. I, I'll give you that. You know what song they should never use again? What? I'm Coming Home. Yeah, okay. It's played out. It is. It's overdone. Does anybody else, who who else has a, uh, well, Frankie Edgar, right? Kicking the door. Notorious B.I.G. Okay, yeah. That's his song. I guess, I bet there are a but lot of. But he runs to the damn cage, so you really just don't, you don't get a, into it. You don't get a chance to hear the whole thing. Well, he's just so jacked to get yeah. out there. Can't wait. He's going to come back uh, 49 days, right? Not yes, to, he is. Not to preempt some questions we've got coming up. How about you? Let's say uh, Dana White calls up. Says Ben Ben Folks, we were looking for somebody to fight CM Punk in Chicago. Uh, I'll take that. What What are you gonna? What's your song? Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani. Really? Ain't no Hollaback Girl. Really? This shit is bananas. B n b a n a. There you go. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm surprised. I'm surprised that that's your choice. That's right. I keep you guessing. Just when you think you you had the answers, I changed the questions. Wow. And then my opponent's got to stand there and think. What don't I know about this guy? <laughs> all right. Well, that's a solid point. I, I bet that that. I'm, in his uh, head. I'm all up in his head. I bet that choice is going to fetch some response. Ain't no hollaback, girl. Okie dokie. What about you? Uh, Kickstart My Heart, Motley Crue. Okay. A song about skydiving naked from an aeroplane. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like you're going to have to grow a mullet for that one. 
And I hope get some pyro. I hope I'm getting some pyro for this walkout. Right. And they'll, they'll, you'll walk out and they'll be like, whoa, where did the sleeves of his Reebok shirt go? He just exploded. I right? saw him five seconds ago backstage. He had sleeves on. As soon as the, the first opening, you know, screeching guitar of Kickstart My Heart, it's like his sleeves melted. I bet a million people are going to hit us up with, with awesome UFC slash MMA walkouts that we did not mention. That's true. Next question. Uh, Matt Webb, he asks, here I am rolling through MMA site after MMA site while I sit at my cubicle. Each headline from each site reads this, read the similar insert Connor says about something about Floyd said in relation to inserts UFC seven out of 10 on takedowns. Click link for more. Not to mention the UFC keeps putting this idea out in the ether as well. I have a question. What in the fuck are we doing? Are we in that much trouble here? Are we all in that much trouble? Is this sport on its way out? Why in the absolute fuck do we want to see this? We this desperate for clicks and pay-per-view eyes? Yes. Short answer, yes. Long answer. We already we got fooled once by these motherfuckers, right? We already came out and we're like, there's no way this happens. So I feel like there is a like arm's length cover your ass kind of situation happening where uh we're gonna like keep one eye on Floyd Mayweather just in case. Yeah. Okay. Also, I have two kind of responses. One is that the UFC, I think, has decided, especially under new ownership, that you need to focus on hitting some home runs to the extent that you maybe even can afford to not worry about all the singles that you're hitting on a weekendly basis. Like you, you need to go after those those big kills, like a, a fight like Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather would be. And they get so focused on that that they'll do it at the expense of the other stuff. Plus, as far as why MMA sites are talking about it, because they're kind of guaranteed clicks and because both those guys are really good at not letting the story die. Like Floyd Mayweather will come out with this stuff like my wrestling is a 7 out of 10 kind of thing. Um, which I think still puts him below Dana White on the UFC game. <laughs> but, you know, he they're, they're perfect for each other in that sense because both Mayweather and McGregor are experts at just finding just the right little thing to throw back into the argument just when it was about to die down and get the whole discussion started again. But from the UFC's perspective, I wonder how much about this is uh, molding perception while you're in the late stages of negotiating a new TV deal. Like, if you're talking to TV suitors, you need to sell them on the idea that, hey, there could be huge stuff on the horizon. Maybe Anthony Joshua comes over, maybe Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor. You want to be in this business in the future. Like, we're not done. It's not all, you know, downhill from here. There's still the possibility of these huge fights happening. And so you want to keep that conversation going. Can I mention a terrifying thought that I had about Zufa Boxing LLC? By all means. Uh, on the heels of this Anthony Joshua stuff, uh, is the point of Zufa Boxing, Ben, going to be to try to recreate the success of Mayweather versus McGregor by signing some actual boxers and bringing them in and letting them beat up the UFC's MMA stars? That can't be it, right? Because that would be the most cynical and cutthroat thing I could possibly think of. Let me ask you this. When was the first time you even heard of Zufa boxing? It was before Mayweather McGregor when both Conor McGregor and Dana White took advantage of the spotlight to print up some t-shirts for their non-existent uh, like fight promotions. That's right. Right? I'm just saying if that's when 
the idea seems to have come into public view, maybe that should tell us something about what the intention is. I think what you're actually trying to say is like, let's cross that bridge when we get to it because Zufa boxing is still totally fake. But like, you're also saying yes, right? You're saying, saying Anthony Joshua is <laughs> going to beat up Steve Amiocic in a boxing match. I'm saying it's not impossible. It makes sense that they would do that, but good lord, good lord indeed, just good lord. That's the that's almost the worst thing I've ever heard. Well, and it tells you something about the differing pay scales of the two sports that. The boxers would be willing to do that, but they would not be so willing to come in and fight MMA in the UFC, whereas the UFC fighters, hey man, if there's a good paycheck in it, they need that money, they'll go do it, even if they're going to be at a disadvantage in the other guy's sport. Next question this week comes to us from Matthew Henry. He writes, if USADA is going to show up at Stupid O'Clock to randomly drug test fighters, how about we just have them carry a scale and fighters have to walk around within 5 or 6% of their fight weight? Am I missing something or did I just solve weight cutting? Everybody would just end up fighting up a class and nobody would have to ruin themselves with cutting. You want to fight at lightweight? Fine. Just be that size all year long, whether you have a fight booked or not. Anybody who thinks that sounds like hell on earth, that's called being a welterweight. Lightweights are all welterweights anyway. We'd still get the same size dudes in the same size matchups. The priority would just be uh, continuity and not being a fatty between fights, same as pros in any other sport. Um, This is something that I've thought about before because I have a long thought, if we are going to interject ourselves into these people's lives to have them do blood tests and, and uh, you know, drug testing and testers showing up to get guns pointed at them at five o'clock in the morning, uh, why not just carry a scale around and, and like weigh, weigh these people in to just to get like a baseline weight and yeah. then kind of figure out weight class stuff from there. Is, is that too simple? Am I oversimplifying here? Well, there a couple things about that. One is what are you going to do if they – are way above weight. Like you show up two weeks after they fought, they don't have another fight booked, uh, maybe they lost and they drowned their sorrows in pizza, and you show up and you're like, whoa, you are 45 pounds above your fighting weight. That seems like a problem. What's then the next action you take? Do you force them up to a different weight class? Because then it seems like even more intrusive. It's the same question we had when the UFC instituted, like, here's the percentage over we think you can be when you show up on fight week. And the question was, or else what? And we saw them pull a fight, but it was a, a minor fight and still yet to be seen if they'll do that against a, with a big, like, you know, a co-main event or a main event. Like, are you willing to actually put some teeth into that regulation? And the other part of it is, I kind of, there's a part of me that thinks it is your right to be a fatty between fights if you want to. I mean, it's not here, a good here. idea. Here, here. <laughs> I've been between fights for a while now. <laughs> it's not a good idea. And you can hear a bunch of like coaches complain about it when they have fighters where you just spend the entire training camp getting the weight off and, you know, that's not where you want to be. But I also feel like since there is no off season in fighting, it's a little bit like too onerous a requirement to be like, you should always be in an in shape weight. What if you want to go on vacation, man? What if you want to enjoy some good food? What if you don't have any plans to fight anytime soon? You let your weight get a little away from you again, not a great idea, but I, I do feel like that's your business. And yet I also agree that if we could do something to just get these guys to all accept like, Hey, if we all stopped weight cutting, none of us would have to weight cut anymore. I do think that's true. Like it is just like a, it's a thing that you were doing. You're torturing yourself just to not be at a disadvantage at this point. You're not getting an advantage really from weight cutting. 
Yeah, I think if you were going to go with a system like that, you would have to do it almost gradually. You would have to get like a baseline weight for everyone over the period of like a year, yeah, year and a half. And then maybe you could figure out uh, who should be in which weight classes and what the weight classes should even be. But I agree with you that it also creates numerous problems in terms of like, uh, let's say Conor McGregor is going to fight Nate Diaz for a third time. You show up at Conor McGregor's house two months before the fight. All the all the PR is out there. All the advertising is out there. Turns out Conor McGregor is like 185 or something, and they're supposed to fight at 155. What do you do? Are you just like, well, Conor McGregor's a middleweight now, guys. Sorry. Going to have to call off this Nate Diaz fight. Yeah. I just don't think that that would work. But it would be interesting just as like a – a data gathering operation to have USADA just weigh everybody when they test and like to tell them like we're not going to do anything with this we're not nobody's going to get punished or uh, nobody's even going to mention this weight to you but we just want to have it for our own use like put together a spreadsheet like it could be like anonymous like we showed up to test this lightweight here was his weight and just to see like what the the fluctuations are and what it looks like I would be interested in that that information I think a lot of people would. Are you ready for the lightning round? Okay, yeah. Let's ready, we haven't let's... done a lightning round during an All Questions Considered episode of the podcast for a long time now. Yeah. You ready to do it? Lightning round? So what, we have to keep our, our answers short? That's so, the idea? As short as you can. Okay. You ready? Yes. Question one from Terrence Davidson. What is your favorite animal? Great white shark. Bear. Also, sloths are pretty awesome. What kind of bear? Grizzly bear. Okay, naturally. Uh, from Robert Skeins. I've noticed that neither of you have directly stated your political leanings. While the two of you have said things that I find to be obviously liberal, I still find myself wondering. So my question is, do you intentionally keep your political ideals vague on the podcast? No. But you know who gets mad? Conservatives. Everybody. <laughs> they get mad. They're like the they're the Irish fans of the political spectrum. Like you you don't even have to say something about Conor McGregor. And Irish people will send you a bunch of tweets like, well, what, why you shit talking McGregor? Like when they got super mad that the, somebody sent an email. Uh, uh, this is the lightning round, by the way. Now I've, <laughs> I've already gone on too long. But this last week, someone sent a listener mail rant of the week to the Breakfast of Champions, obviously using as a fake name the name of a beloved broadcaster in Ireland who broadcasts, what is it, curling? Okay, curling? Something sure. like that. And I was like, oh, hey, we got this email from this guy, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And I got a bunch of replies that were like, don't res disrespect that man. And I was like, what <laughs> I, What could I possibly have said? <laughs> okay. Don't you think, though, that somebody like Tim Kennedy feels the same way about liberals? That, you know, oh, they get so mad. And, you know, you're just trying to be out here exercising your Second Amendment uh, rights. And they, they liberals get so mad at you for every little thing. Probably. Yeah. But to answer the question, yes, we both do seem to lean liberal on most issues. As far as keeping them intentionally vague, I I mean, I don't really feel like we do that. But to the extent that we don't talk a whole lot about politics is just that uh, this is a, a fight show. It's about fight sports. And Comedy we don't want to fight show. We, we want everybody to be able to listen and enjoy. But, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious where we stand on a lot of political issues. Next question, Scott Pfeiffer. This question is brought to you in haiku form. Conor McGregor has not defended a belt. Selling wolf tickets? Oh. Okay, so that, your voice goes up at the end. That's what makes it a question? I guess so. I mean, I decided to make it into a question. It's not punctuated as a It wasn't punctuated no, at all see. when we got it in the email. Um, I, yes. Is I, Conor McGregor no? coming back? Yes. Conor okay. McGregor's coming back. I, I, that's my answer. 
Okay, next question. What's Cal- your answer? Yes, probably. Maybe not. Callie Esper, what do you see as the future of the women's divisions? Do you think the UFC will ever have co-ed fights? Do you guys like cats? Wow. Yes, I like cats. I have a cat. You have two cats. I don't like them, though. The UFC will never have co-ed fights? Nope. The future of the women's division is probably still pretty bright, although we're in an awkward period right now because no one has really replaced Ronda Rousey and Joanna Jedjicic just lost. And uh, Chris Cyborg is your biggest star there. Yet at the same time, when you look at the ability to provide a, a belt to put on uh, fight posters, women's divisions have really saved the UFC's ass lately. Jason Spear, do either of you enjoy martial arts action movies? Got any favorite films or performers you'd care to help hip us to? I suspect you aren't into such nonsense, but I thought I'd ask the question. Ben, can you imagine listening to this podcast for 300 episodes and thinking that we are not into nonsense? Come on! <laughs> we are almost exclusively into nonsense. Uh, favorite action movie slash martial arts movie? Hmm. Bloodsport. Bloodsport is awesome. Not martial arts, but Predator. Predator's fucking amazing as an action movie. You know what? Okay. I realize this is a lightning round. I was watching Predator the other day. Shocking. I know. Uh, and you know what the least exciting part of Predator is for me? Uh, how could I possibly know? Weirdly, the huge action sequence near the beginning where they go into this village to complete this mission that they were ostensibly sent out there to do. And they're blowing up shit and, uh, you know, Arnold's throwing a knife and telling the guy to stick around. And there's a bunch of, you know, there's also all the little, like, cliche 80s action movie things are crammed into this one uh, incredible violent action scene. But then when you have seen Predator a few times and you know what's to come, you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, just get through this part. Just get through this part. The Predator's not even in this part, man. Come on. It's weird how this scene that gives you all the stuff that you think you want out of an 80s action movie, and uh, it barely even rates a movie like Predator. It's the tension that builds up. That's what gets you. It sure is. Uh, First Blood? Oh, yeah. Okay. First well, Blood is really good, and but, also, like, by today's standards, not really an action movie. No, but just like an actual good movie. Eric Murphy, from Eric Murphy, Invicta finally switched the useless job of Ring Girls to men, progressive or pointless, who the fuck cares? Not going to call it progressive. I mean, they still had ring girls out there, so it's not like we, we made any huge strides forward. Danny Downs and I talked a lot about this. Uh, but um, honestly, more than anything, this made me wonder about what the health of Invicta is. Because this seemed like, okay, you're using this to get a little bit of attention on the event, and it worked to some extent. But I also remember Shannon Knapp saying she would abs- she explicitly said she would never do this. And now she's done it, and it made me wonder, hmm, the UFC keeps taking all your, your name talent whenever you build somebody up. Is this a sign that Invicta is kind of struggling to attract attention? Got to believe that Elias Theodoro's heart is in the right place because it's, it always is, it seems to be. Uh, and it just seemed like he wanted to have a little fun and also uh, you know make some points about equality that I thought were – were admirable to make, and also uh, ultimately kind of ended up overshadowing the actual Invicta event. A little bit. So, not his fault, but... From Mehmet in Herefordshire, England. Is the former Boston Globe Book of the Year champion of the world going to make its way to Kindle in the UK anytime soon, or am I going to have to buy a hardback like I'm still in the goddamn Machida era? Chad, am I to understand that your book is not available on Kindle? Not in the UK. Why not? Uh, because no one bought the UK publishing rights. So oh. the answer to Mehmet's question is no. It will not be on Kindle in the UK. And yes, he does have to buy a hardback like it's the goddamn Machida era. They can't even get the just regular Kindle stuff? Yeah, they're like, well, the publishing company or publishing industry controls all that stuff, which makes sense when, when you think about it for a little while. But, you know, got to sell UK rights to have it on the UK and Kindle. All right. That doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Next question from Molham Babuli. 
who I assume is a soccer player. Years ago, the National Hockey League went to a two-ref system, first for the playoffs and then for the regular season. Wouldn't the Octagon benefit from having two refs? Please to hear some jocularity on this matter. No. It'd be just super confusing to have two refs. I'm going to say yes. One ref in the cage, one ref outside the cage watching a monitor. Okay, well then, for like instant replay purposes? Yeah. All right, sure. I'll go with that. Next question from Minivan Luke. Honda Odyssey or Toyota Sienna or dot, dot, dot. I personally have the Sienna. It came down to the Odyssey or the Sienna. Probably the two finest minivans on the market right now. Yeah, okay. I went with the minivan because it's the only one that Uh offers all-wheel drive. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that it? I've been in some real tight triangles. (laughs) My day. Next question from Dennis Johansson. Since there is not a lot of shit going on, who is your favorite journeyman in your area, a fighter no one outside your state has ever heard of? Well, if you call somebody a journeyman, they're going to get pissed off about it. Yeah, it's kind of an insult. There are some fine fighters from the state of Montana, though. There are. As Sean O'Malley now making waves over there in the That's UFC. right. I mean, he's unbeaten and, you know, a young prospect, so nobody's going to call him a journeyman. Uh, but one of my favorite fighters from Montana who not a whole lot of people have heard of, but I'm sure some people have, is uh, Tim Welch, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago as uh, Sean O'Malley's shit-talking corner man in that uh, fight. Um, but, yeah. Tough guy, good fighter, hits hard, uh, and just a really good, nice dude who is super passionate and enthusiastic about martial arts. He was on the Fight Master. He was, yeah. Uh, Lloyd I Woodard. He was a finalist on the Fight Master. Yeah, he was. Lloyd Woodard, also from Montana, spent some time in Bellator. That's right. Got some high-profile wins. Yes, he did. Beat one of the Pitbull brothers, I believe. Next question this week comes to us from James. That's the end of the lightning round, Woo! by the way. I'm spent. Yeah. This question's from James Hawkins. During a recent episode, you were discussing the UFC's upcoming TV deal, and I noticed there was no mention of the UFCFightPass.com. Last year, the UFC renewed their TV deal, TV deal in Australia, but made one small change. All content except pay-per-views are also broadcast live and on demand on FightPass. This has been a great change and was a no-brainer for me to go ahead and cut the cord. Do you think that the UFC would con- consider doing this in the upcoming US TV negotiations, especially if they aren't going to get the deal they were hoping for or would a digital streaming deal with Amazon spell doom for the Fight Pass platform? The next question also from Amy Soon is, is related, so I'll just read that too. Been thinking about this on and off and wanted to get your take on it. What are your thoughts about the UFC adopting a WWE network model for the old FightPass.com? Uh, from what I've seen over my boyfriend's shoulder, uh, the WWE network model seems pretty legit. It's got so much exclusive content, shows, interviews, behind-the-scenes things, live streams of the pay-per-views. It seems worth the money uh, my boyfriend spends on it. Uh, with the WME-IMG-XYZ merger, I keep hoping that they would adopt this model since they manage talent and probably content creation it's interesting because i think you know you started fight pass for the ufc because you wanted a place to log all this content and because you're not exactly sure where media consumption is going and so everybody kind of wants to have one of the the ott platforms available because who knows that might be where we all end up going if there was a way where the ufc could tell me Here's one price. Here's one monthly price that you can pay and you can get everything. Then, yeah, I think that would be an awesome deal. Because the, the problem right now is like with Fight Pass, okay, yeah, I, I pay for it every once in a while. There's a Fight Pass event. They usually aren't the best events, but hey, there's still events. You can watch a bunch of other non-UFC events on there. You can watch old fights. You can watch prelims to events. But you still can't tell me like – that I can watch all the UFC stuff through there because then a lot of stuff is just going to be on Fox Sports 1 or on Big Fox, um, you know, not even thinking about the pay-per-views. It, I still can't 
fully buy into the promise of Fight Pass if a lot of your content goes to the, the TV partner and won't be available for like 30 days on Fight Pass. If Fight Pass had absolutely everything the way that the WWE Network has absolutely everything, it would be a complete no-brainer for guys like you and me to shell out almost any price for it. Because when you think about it, if you pay like 75 bucks for TV plus 60 bucks for pay-per-views plus $10 for uh, the FightPass.com, they could charge like $75 a month for an all-inclusive FightPass.com, and you would still save a shitload of money. WWE, I believe, charges $9.99, the same as FightPass, for what is uh, undoubtedly a far superior product. The question is, are we ever going to get there? And I think uh, that we will. I think begrudgingly the UFC will eventually follow the WWE's lead and everything will be on the fightpass.com. I just don't know when that will happen. And like lots of it depends, I'm sure on this television money, especially since WME IMG counted on renegotiating this TV deal as like a major consideration when it agreed to pay $4.2 billion to buy the UFC. So like once you consider it that way, you could be looking at a long wait before they decide to put everything on the internet. But man, I wish they would because it would be awesome. Yeah, it would really change my uh, cable package purchasing decisions. I can tell you that much right now because I do not need this package that has 500 goddamn channels just so I can get Fox Sports 2 included. Next question. Next question comes from Mark German. Came, aclo- came across Fox Sports' tweet of the UFC's top 25 fights and seeing Diaz versus McGregor at number one and two as number two and one, respectively, left me conflicted. Besides seeming like lazy, blatant picks, I have to feel that context and stakes matter as much as the action in the cage when we think about the greatest fights. That's the whole reason we watch this sport, right? Or do these factors really only matter to the hardcore fans at the time? Side note, if I'm Nate Diaz, the price just went up. (laughs) Yes, it did. Uh, A lot of considerations when trying to decide what the top fights in UFC history are, right? Uh, And I wouldn't necessarily uh, tell you you were wrong if you told me that, that Fox Sports took a... A uh, very narrow view of even the like time frame that they were going to consider and what uh, accounted for for like what would make the fights the top one and two UFC fights in in the company's history. I think that those are the top two grossing fights in UFC history. Are they not like the the best selling pay per views yeah. one and two or the are McGregor versus Diaz one and two? Well, or I mean, I don't know UFC one hundred. I don't know exactly what the numbers were, but that you know, yeah, especially in recent years, like those were that's the probably two huge. that's probably right. And UFC one hundred was more of a team effort, though, right? right? So like pay per views that were sold on the on the the promise of basically one fight alone. I think McGregor versus Diaz one and two are the, are the top sellers. Uh, so maybe that's what just what I'm not, I haven't looked at the tweet. So it's possible that that's, that's all they're considering here. But I agree with you that it's weird to, uh, to make like a couple of uh, one-off welterweight fights that were basically booked as, as attractions as your, your greatest fights of all time, in my opinion anyway. Right. But then at the same time, when I think about some of the fights that were my personal favorites to watch, they usually weren't like title fights or even necessarily top contender fights. Like I think of the first Shogun Hua Dan Henderson fight, uh, which we were both at in San Jose, and that one was just awesome. Uh, and I also think of like uh, Kobe Sampson versus the Korean Superboy. And that one, I guess you could call it like a contender eliminator kind of fight. But it was just like a good pairing of two good fighters at the right time, and they just put on a hell of a fight. So it wasn't necessarily like the stakes were super important for that one. Yeah, I always go back to Matt Hughes versus Frank Trigg, which I know was a popular choice. I was in the arena for that one, and I've almost never seen anything like it. 
uh, before or since in the moment that Matt Hughes uh, like battled back from being almost finished and scooped Frank Trigg up and carried him across the octagon. The basically everyone in the arena all stood up and mass like every single person in the arena came out of their seat and it was just like this enormous collective gasp. It was pretty amazing. So that to me, that, that was, it remains my, uh, my favorite live fight watching experience just because of that moment. Yeah. Well, and I would put in that same category, uh, Nick Diaz and Paul Daly in Bellator or in uh, strike force. I mean, I, I remember being at that one and, and it was just another where it's only one round and it's just a furious round the entire way through. And yeah, like the, the tension that, that builds up with people watching that and you just feel like it's, it was a super intense moment or a super intense experience that leaves you just like kind of emotionally exhausted by the time it's over. Uh, and those are the kind that stand out for me as some of the best fights. Next question from Corbin G writes, what do you, what do you think explains the rather right wing trend of a lot of fighters and management in the UFC and other combat sports? For example, Dana White speaking at the Republican national convention and articles like this one. And then he links Deadspin. Why are so many MMA fighters truth or conspiracists? Uh, it does not, it's not just rich people bias here. Uh, there must be something else going on. Please discourse. I will tell you one thing. I think when it comes to Dana White, there's a lot of rich person bias. Yeah. There. I don't also, think, I think has... like Dana White to say that Dana White has any sort of political leaning, I think is to overstate it. I think that Dana White considers himself to be uh, a Republican and is a donor in Nevada to the Republican party uh, because those people look after his interests. And I think that he went to the Republican national convention to speak on the behalf of, of the for, of future president uh, because he, he just likes Donald Trump on a personal level. Like those dudes had done business together and it worked out for them. So right. I think that's kind of all it takes to uh, for Dana White to want to show up to do you a solid. Yeah, I don't think that he has any super deeply held political beliefs. Uh, I think you're right about that. But the other question, and, you know, I remember reading this Deadspin article and it talks about how many uh, MMA fighters are. And it doesn't, I don't know if it goes into like right wing, left wing on our side, but how many MMA fighters seem to love conspiracy theories and are, are truthers of one kind or another. And it's true that you, I think you do see an uncommon number of people who are into that kind of stuff uh, come from MMA as opposed to other sports. And I think maybe some of it just has to do with the kinds of people who are attracted to the job of MMA fighter. Like I remember Greg Jackson saying that that fight sports are a place for the misfits of the world, that you kind of found, you found your way here. Uh, as we've said before, not because it was like your first idea or the thing that uh, society was encouraging you to do. You know, nobody's parents were super happy when they heard that you were going to become a professional fighter for the most part. And so you're, I think fighters already are a little bit more open to the idea that there are vast, powerful forces at work that are hidden from view and that uh, they alone are capable of seeing them. And how often have you talked to a fighter and they seem to like to get into conspiracy theories about even their own careers and the way th – like they like to feel like there are these forces allied against them. And they are the underdog battling against those. The promoter's against me. He wants the other guy to win. The fans are against me. Everybody's trying to screw me. The athletic commission is in on it. A lot of fighters seem to like to think that way. I don't know if it's just for motivation or, or what it is, but it's not an uncommon mindset among fighters. It must help somehow. Yeah, I, I remember at some point somebody said, I can't remember who it was, it might have been you, although I don't want to give you the credit for it. Uh, you know, when you have professional athletes, they're people who have already succeeded, and this is true also of, of fighters, obviously. They've succeeded when almost everyone else around them has failed, right? If you were a professional football player, 
you were the best player on your Pop Warner team, the best player on your high school team, the best player on your college team, and then you eventually make the pros. And every a lot, every step of the way, 99.9% of the other people that you played with, that was the highest level that they played, right? They were done after that. So I think once you get there, it, like you almost have, you have to explain that somehow to right. yourself. And I think that that makes you... Maybe it predisposes you both to like be religious. That was my argument, I believe, when I made this point originally. Because you have to be like, well, obviously I was chosen by God to like be super good at tackling people and now I make millions of dollars. I wonder if it also is sort of like uh, leads you to to like be more malleable when it comes to uh, conspiracy theories to sort of explain the, the other unexplained aspects of life. Yeah. I'm just guessing. That that could be another weird thing about MMA fighters. Lots of them are into guns, which I've always found strange. But I think that it's like a uh, adrenaline thing. Like Greg Jackson, for instance. Yeah, super into guns. Super into guns. John Jones, super, super into guns. Into guns. Yeah. And those are two guys that if you just like knew them uh, socially, you might not be. You might not immediately think, oh, I bet this guy has a hundred guns. That makes sense to me, though, because the same person who you know when they're young is attracted to martial arts because, well, like you know. I should definitely learn everything I can about combat against other human beings sure, because I'm yeah. going to need that information for one reason or another. Uh, it's kind of a natural outcrop of that that like, yeah, I would also be interested in other forms of combat. Might even have a weapons room in my house if I happen to be stupidly rich. Next question from Brian Mills. The cool northern California air bit through my white linen suit as I strode through the pistachio orchard. My gentleman's cape ruffling softly in the early morning breeze like a pre-Reebok-era sponsor banner. Emerging from the trees into a clearing, I thought to myself, It's time! I loosed my falcon, marveling at his raw brawl ability as he soared ever higher up, up the ranking into the excellent red clouds. Fly free, old friend, I whispered into the wind. And I'm going to read this as I believe it's intended to be read. I see you soon, boy! As I said it, I wondered, of all the great one-liner MMA-isms we've been treated to throughout the years, which ones would stick out to my dudes as the real interim champions of just saying stuff? Well, that's a fucking incredible question. Yes, it is. Really paints a, a, a image. Why is you. Brian Mills just cracking off these pearls to the co-main event podcast? I, I hope that he, in his spare time, he's like ghostwriting a, a best-selling novel for James Patterson or something. <laughs> well, I thought of this one... Today, in fact, because when we were having a, a text message exchange about what time we were going to do this, yeah. and there was a little bit of confusion, yes. and you claimed that I had not said a certain time that I had, in fact, said, and I could not help myself but to encourage you to check the record, bud. Yeah, you really got me with that. Now, that's one I kind of hate that has become a part of my lexicon, because it's a really douchey thing to say. It, it's I sound like an asshole every time I tell somebody to check the record, bud. But it's like the first thing that leaps to my mind, even like when, with my wife, when she's just like, no, we didn't agree to this. And I'm like, check the record, bud. But I found myself, I can't remember exactly the circumstance, but I found myself recently say it to someone I knew who I knew, maybe to like one of my parents or something. And I knew they would not know the context, but I could, I didn't realize it until afterwards. And I was like, they think I'm just saying this for real. <laughs> they don't get that it's a reference. Now, are we talking about, MMA-isms that have infected our own lexicon, or are we talking about just ones that stick out to us? Because I always remember hapless Paul Buentello trying to get the crowd <laughs> to say the second half of his catchphrase, oh, don't fear me, fear the consequences. I, I cringe hearing you describe it. And when he said, don't fear me, it was just silence in the arena. Just complete and total silence. 
And I, uh, did, had he just won like the Strike Force title? He had won some title, didn't he? Or was that? I don't remember when he exactly he said it, but uh, yeah, don't fear me. Just silence. <laughs> just silence. What else? You got anything else? I always remember Tank Abbott when they told him that there was going to be weight classes in the UFC, and they said that it was going to open up the door to a lot of different fighters, and he said, not the giant door. <laughs> uh, I really remember Don Fry's quip about Ken Shamrock before they fought in Pride. Ken Shamrock's the most dangerous man in the world? Behind the wheel of a car, maybe. <laughs> uh, Ken Shamrock saying he was going to beat Tito Ortiz into a living death. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. That's one that, that I'll drop from time to time. Uh, Got to pick the right moment, though. That's one you don't want to say to your parents. Yeah. Got to be careful there. Next question this week from Ben MS. I was wondering if you gents would be interested in discussing the UFC booking we've seen recently with regard to the outcome at the end of the fight. It seems like in the Joe Silva days, it didn't matter who won or you if you could still generate an interesting narrative and work the winner into your future plans either way. In the new era of the UFC, we look like we're moving away from this. Consider the Valentina Shevchenko-Priscilla Cachuera fight uh, for a moment. We'll ignore the fact that the fight should never have been booked in the first place. Valentina won easily, but really proved nothing because she was always going to win easily. Uh, so she gets one fight against a complete can and moves up to W125 number one contender. Based on her history, that spot is warranted, but imagine if she lost. Would we have seen Cachuera move up into that spot? Of course not. A fight like Eddie Alvarez-Justin Gaethje is something that no matter who wins, the fans win and the division wins because either fighter works well in the upper echelon of the 155-pound division. It seems that there are more and more fights where the winner is almost predetermined based on the future plans and promo packages, and we all know the MMA gods are sometimes looking to lay some pure fuckery on those plans. I can't imagine they expected Alexander Volkov to win this past weekend. You know, I don't know about that one, uh, about the Alexander Volkov one. I think that that one actually made sense when you considered that the heavyweight division was kind of put on pause there by having uh, Stipe versus Cormier booked. And you got to do something with guys like Verdum who, you know, if you don't want to get into that same thing, especially at heavyweight where it's just a bunch of reruns. And so, like, yeah, let him go out there and see if he can make a fresh case for himself. Or if not, then you get some new young guy. But, uh, I mean, I... I do agree with the Shevchenko Cashwera. That was a good example where you're booking that fight feeling like you know what the outcome is and you, you're basically using it as like highlight fodder, or at least that's the way it seems. And it's true. I mean, if there's a reason that the UFC had a reputation before for not doing that, I think it's because like all fight promoters, there were times where it tried to do that and it didn't go that well. I would think of, uh, Gabriel Gonzaga, Mirko Krokop, for example, where it seemed clear that the idea was for Krokop to go in there, beat Gabriel Gonzaga, and then fight Randy Couture, and you're going to have yourselves a big fight. And instead, Gonzaga, Krokop's Krokop, and then you get Couture, Gonzaga. And I think the UFC mostly learned from those lessons and decided, like, all right, let's make fights where no matter what happens, we can work with it. But I don't know, maybe with... Uh, so many more divisions and you're trying to build stars, which is one of the things people are always criticizing the UFC for not doing. Maybe they're thinking, put together a squash fight every now and then, and maybe you, you kind of build yourself a star that way. Yeah, it does seem like the entire industry has become a little bit more receptive to what might be more of a boxing style of building up uh, young fighters or building up prospects. Uh, I still wonder to what end at some point, though, like, especially as it concerns this specific example with Valentina Shevchenko, 
Like, we haven't seen Valentina Shevchenko catapulted onto bigger and better things because of that win over Cashwera. Maybe it's too early to have done that yet. But it's just sort of like, uh, if you watch MMA, you probably already knew who Valentina Shevchenko was. You had probably already seen her in her more high-profile fights, at least. You probably already knew what she brought to the table. So even as we sit here today, I'm not 100% sure what we got out of you know, watching her just put a beat down on, on Priscilla Cashuera. It seemed like uh, if you're going to do that for a, a, a personality or a, a prospect, you, you, you almost have to do it from the beginning. And, I, you know, maybe this was the beginning of, of Valentina Shevchenko's career at, at women's flyweight, but at the same time, like, I, I don't know what we learned about Valentina Shevchenko that we didn't already know. Where, whereas, like, I think if you look at Conor McGregor, not that he got – you know, Cashuera type opponents, but I think if you look back at, at his rise to to dominance, you can make the case that he got a certain kind of fighter yeah. throughout his throughout some of his career at least. Well, and the UFC wasn't trying to be in the Dennis Seaver business when they put that fight together, right? It's just like, uh, you know, but that but that kind of worked for Conor McGregor because we got that from him from the beginning. Like, had you given Conor McGregor, uh, you know, a bunch of hard nosed American wrestlers, and maybe he has a fifty fifty record. After six fights, I don't know that you could push the reset button and start over again. True. I feel like if you're going to build somebody up, you got to do it from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Josh Piercy from Newfoundland. So I was in Vegas for UFC 222 where Brian Ortega shocked most with a vicious elbow and KO of Mr. Edgar. So my thought is, is anyone else feeling uncomfortable about Frankie jumping back in there next month in Atlantic City? I know he was training hard for a fight that never lasted long. He was coming off a long layoff, and I'm sure he wants to get back in there and rebound fast. But really, getting into another scrap 49 days after a very game, after with a very game Cubby Sampson? What do you think? Yeah, this one, uh, is a little bit questionable for me because he got rocked. He got knocked out hard there, and that just doesn't really happen to Frankie Edgar. He's 36. He got knocked off his feet by a goddamn uppercut. But then, hey, we're in New Jersey. We need somebody to help sell us some tickets and generate some buzz in New Jersey. So let's see if old man Edgar wants to run it back less than two months uh, after his, his knockout loss. I don't know about that one, man. Yeah, this feels like the situation where we have to decide if we're going to start getting worried about Frankie Edgar, right? Which is not necessarily a, a juncture that I think any of us relish or maybe that we expected to come to at this moment. But you, yeah, and it's going to depend largely about how this fight with Cub Swanson goes. But it does seem like uh, if you wanted to make us worried, this would be the thing to do. Yes. This is the right move. Yeah. So it does seem like... Uh, yeah, we've all got questions about Frankie Edgar returning to the Octagon quite this fast, and I think we're all going to be watching a little bit intently when he does fight Cubby Sampson just to see, uh, you know, how it goes. But, I, I mean, I think the concern is that it doesn't really have to do with whether he wins or loses here because you get you get knocked out like that, you should not be taking hits to the head again so soon, which you're going to have to do in training just to get ready for the next fight. So even if you go in there and you, you beat Cubby Sampson as easily as you beat him last time, you're still the the stuff you had to go through in order just to get in there was probably also just not a very good idea, and it also forfeits one of Dana White's favorite claims a few years ago. We mentioned, I believe, in the Breakfast of Champions, where he would say, "Hey, MMA is safer than football because in football they're getting their brains rocked and then they get right back in there. You know, they're playing that same game or they're playing next week, two weeks later." And he used to brag, "Hey, in the UFC, you get concussed or you get dropped, or you get hurt at all." Three months suspension. And clearly, you know, the Michael Bisping example before this example now, that's no longer the case. And you're kind of setting that up as a talking point to be used against you, perhaps even in future lawsuits. 
To that end, here's a question from Joe Bond, who writes, One can only presume that Frankie Edgar is ignoring the no-contact part of his medical suspension in the lead-up to his fight with Cub Swanson. Are these suspensions just for show with no real clout or protection for KO'd fighters? What say you gentlemen? Just for show. Yeah, and like those suspensions are almost unenforceable, right? Unless you're going to send... Uh, an agent out to Frankie Edgar's gym to watch out to make sure that he's not training. Plus, you can, everybody can get you cleared pretty easily from stuff like that. Like the same thing I remember writing about this with the Michael Bisping thing, where it was like he was given a longer suspension, and then they went back and shortened the suspension to where it ended just before they needed it to end. Like basically, they shortened it when he had a fight booked, and so it's the same thing here, where you because there's no real way. Like, it's difficult to show with any sort of test with brain stuff, like, when it would be safe for you to be hit in the head again. Like, you can't really go to the doctor and be like, hey, can you look at my brain and tell me it's okay for somebody to punch me in the head? Because it's never really okay. And, I mean, there are times when they can look at it and be like, okay, well, definitely not now because you have, like, a blood clot or something. But there's never any time where they can look at it and be like, okay, yep, this is a, a clear sign that you are ready to be hit in the head. So all you need to do is go to a doctor, tell them, I feel fine. Can you get me off? Can you write me a, a note to get me off the suspension? And boom, there you are. So yeah, they're, they're kind of meaningless. Okay, next question. This one comes from Logan Smith. My question this week concerns the boxer Anthony Joshua and the rumors that he has been offered a uh, $50 million per fight contract with the UFC. I believe the... Report was that it was a multi-fight deal for like $500 million, but I don't know exactly. Yeah, half a billion dollars. Yes. My question is simple. If you're an actual MMA fighter and you make so little that your kids play with shampoo bottles and you're begging your billionaire bosses for $50,000 bonuses to change your life, how mad does this make you? How much does it make you feel like you picked the wrong sport? You would think it would make them mad, right? You'd think that they would get hot about it, maybe think that they picked the wrong sport. Uh, but it seems like the response is, hey, I'll fight Anthony Joshua. Yep. Right? Which is kind of kind of an interesting, and we all know why because they want that money. But at the same time, like you would think, uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit of a broader view would would indeed lead some people to question uh, what was going on here. Yeah, well, my question would be if I'm an MMA fighter and I hear that, is I want to know, okay, what do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do to make that kind to get you to offer me that kind of money. And that's a problem. And I've heard this from a bunch of managers before is that when it comes to trying to get a better deal from the UFC or, you know, get a certain kind of contract or certain kind of guarantees, the problem that they always get frustrated by is that the UFC can never just say, here's what your guy needs to do. You know, there's nothing you can tell him that is a guaranteed path to that kind of money. And like in other sports, there is like, you know, you, you say, what the top quarterback gets in the NFL. And it's like, all right, go out there and produce his kind of numbers. We'll give you that kind of contract. And you can't do it in the UFC because it's not just like, hey, win all your fights. Sometimes that gets you big money. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, uh, go out there and finish people. Sometimes it depends on who you give me, what kind of opportunities I get. You just can't tell anybody like here is what the path to $500 million deal looks like for you. Uh, and that would be what would frustrate me as a fighter. Next question from Matthew P. He writes, longtime listener, even longer MMA watcher. 90, 95% of the events since Liddell Couture won, longtime watcher, in fact. I always assumed that after 13 plus years of loyal Saturday nights, with some Thursday, Friday, and Sunday nights sprinkled in, viewing that I had done more than enough to cement myself into a shit eating wild man 
status. That is, until your recent trip down Pride Memory Lane, where I found that I knew about 10% of the answers in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter quizzes. Soul-crushing indeed. Will you please pontificate on what it says about me? Am I just a fair-weather MMA fan, or am I just a UFC mark? Most importantly, I need to know if there are levels to the shit-eating wild man status, or is it either all or nothing? First of all, Matt, be a little bit too hard on yourself, my friend. take it easy. That Pride event was like 12 years old. That's right. And the questions specifically were a little bit narrowed focused. So it wasn't like you would just, if you watched that event when it aired, you would necessarily be able to all the, answer all the questions if you hadn't gone back and kind of done the homework while watching along with the the stream. So don't beat yourself up. But I do think there are levels to the shit-eating wild man status. For instance, I think the... Highest, or depending on how you want to think about it, lowest level of the shit-eating wild man status is you are always watching MMA events from Russia that we have talked about are going on in constantly. the middle of the afternoon at any given time. There's, when a normal person right would now. be at there work. has to be one. If you are watching those and you actually remember what happens and you remember like who the important fighters are out of those, you are at some other level of shit-eating wild. I mean, that's like Jordan Breen levels of shit-eating wild man status, and he's like at, at a different level than most people because he retains all this information. Like he'll and he'll get really enthusiastic. You can talk to him about like some bantamweight who fought. And on like a dynamite show in 2007, and he will get super geeked out talking about it. So like there are levels to it. Just because you watch every UFC product doesn't mean you necessarily hit all those levels. Even back in the day, it seemed like some people enjoyed the uh, the milieu of Pride Fighting Championships, and some people enjoyed uh, the more straightforward presentation of the UFC. Though, so I do think that there are, you know, not necessarily a divide, but I think that even if you watched both. Um, um, many fans, maybe even most fans, preferred one or the other. So, so like it's, it's. I do find it's pretty frequent that someone has a lot of knowledge about, say, the the uh, the glory days of the UFC, the golden era of the UFC, and you know, not a ton about pride and or vice versa. Yeah, which is a weird quirk in the sport when you think about it. All right, let's uh, one more. We'll probably squeeze in one or two more here. Okay. Uh, this one from Brandon Boyd, not the lead singer of Incubus, as he would like us to mention, I'm sure. I think it's obvious that everyone except the current UFC executives are in favor of the UFC athletes creating some type of organization to better serve their interests. But let's pretend that all the athletes in the UFC actually do unionize and or the Ali Act is amended to include mixed martial artists. With such a sweeping change to the status quo and the fact that the UFC is still a fairly new organization and a niche sport, is it possible that such a change could cripple the organization beyond repair and actually kill organized MMA as we know it? We've heard a lot of cries for the change, but no one has brought up what exactly might happen or what actually might happen. Discourse, please. It's an interesting question uh, and obviously a question that it's hard to know the answer to. I think, like, clearly if you started tinkering around with uh, the economics of the sport and you started it, it, like, let's say that all of the sudden uh, the hand of the MMA gods came down and decreed that you had to have a 50, 50 revenue split between athletes and uh, management at the UFC. Clearly that would change almost everything about how that fight company does business. Uh, it would necessarily do that. Um, and you know, at this point, after having been sold for $4.2 billion to WME IMG, where you don't have, uh, a couple of casino magnates who are in it to make themselves a lot of money, but also in it because they love the sport. Uh, do you ever wonder, Ben, would that just cause the owners of the UFC to throw up their hands and be like, well, this shit ain't worth it anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that that is maybe more of a possibility than we have considered. Also, I think with something like the Ali Act, uh, if it really went into effect uh, for mixed martial arts and it really was enforced, I mean, name me a UFC-like organization in boxing. You know, I think that it would have really far-reaching and, like, potentially, like, the power to reshape the presentation and the look of the entire sport if something like that really went into effect. And I don't know, I'm not saying that, like, that's reason enough not to do it, because I think that there are serious concerns with the way fighters are treated uh, on a lot of different ways. I think right now the one, the the thing I'm most interested in is the Project Spearhead the Leslie Smith thing, especially because I really would enjoy seeing what would happen if fighters managed to challenge their employment status. Because I think that's a big one. Like that, that affects a lot of other things and it could mean a, a reckoning would come for the, the UFC after having classified fighters as independent contractors for so long. I think as we've seen in recent years, you've only moved closer to treating them as employees, you know, with the Reebok deal, the USADA thing, especially now that the, their apparel money is now not just tied to wearing Reebok on the day of the fight, but it's tied to like all the things that you do throughout the week. I mean, you are being treated like employees if you're fighters right now, and but you're not getting the protections or the benefits of that. So I think, you know, little stuff like that could maybe be like a, a domino that sets off other stuff. And I'd be interested to see where that goes. Last question of the public hour of the co-main event podcast all questions considered who's gonna nab it lucas bragg he writes i fear with the rise of russian mma specifically in the chechen region we're going to start seeing a lot more akmat fight club t-shirts being donned by fighters not only on the ufc roster but rosters worldwide uh some of kadyrov's greasemen have recently signed contracts um, Abdul, Kareem, Edelov, and I doubt the company as of right now has any reservations since the fighters coming from that region are uber talented. What, if anything, can the UFC or other promotions do to limit this potential PR nightmare to even be associated with this man uh, in the slightest is frankly quite sickening. Yeah, okay. I, I've, a little bit of my thinking has changed on this recently uh, because not too long ago I was talking to, to some uh, – Chechen fighter, and I tried to ask him something about uh, Kadyrov, and he wouldn't even answer it. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's that's interesting. And then later, it was explained to me by somebody else. You know, if he doesn't support K- Kadyrov, even just like he, he wouldn't even want you to say that he wouldn't talk about it, uh, because that would be seen itself as a potential sign of disrespect which could be dangerous to like family members and and whatnot uh, anybody he knows in close association with in chechnya so i think maybe we assume that it's more of a choice for these guys to associate with him than it is like if you're if you're just from chechnya and you're a fighter and you want to make it out of there you gotta kind of cozy up to the dictator in some regard like even if it's just like not publicly denouncing him or like wearing the t-shirt or going out there and everybody knows that you're one of the Chechen fighters that this guy uses as propaganda. I mean, you're just trying to kind of make a living for yourself and pursue this sport. You're not necessarily trying to make a political statement, but you're not trying to get murdered either. You're not trying to get your family kidnapped either. So I have little, you know, I, I have sympathy for those guys because that's a tough situation. Who I don't have sympathy for is Fabrizio Verdum. 
uh, guys like choosing to associate with it because they want the money. They're just like they're making a deal for themselves and turning like a willful blind eye, no matter how many times people keep asking you about it, to everything that it represents. Like that's the guy that I don't have any sympathy for in this. And the fact that the UFC keeps letting him do it. You know, he lets him come out to the, the, their song, lets him wear his, his T-shirt, like, during fight week. So he shows up in these photos and everything, wearing it and representing them. Like, I think that that's where you can blame the UFC. Like, you have an ability to step in there. You know, if he were wearing Nike, we'd hear about it from you guys. But he's representing the Chechen dictator, and you kind of just don't care. Like, that's where the UFC should uh, take a more active role. Yeah, you make a good point about fighters from that region and how they're in something of a no-win situation. Uh, and then also a good point in, in sort of contrasting that with, with guys like Fabricio Verdum who have, have already made it. Uh, I do think that like the most interesting point to be made here has to do with the UFC and it puts them in kind of a sticky situation. We've seen the UFC cut people from its roster for any number of issues, right? We've seen, uh, them sign fighters and then they learn about a, a criminal past and they will cut that person. Ties to Nazi groups. Right. We've seen them tie, uh, cut ties with people because they had ties to various white supremacist organizations that, uh, you know, didn't come to the surface until they after, after they had already signed the person. So it's interesting that they seem, uh, to at least have a hands off policy, uh, in this instance. And I, and I don't know why. I don't even know exactly what the answer to that is. Um, I don't, and I don't know if anyone has posed it to uh, UFC leadership since we don't get a ton of opportunity to uh, to question them in open settings. I believe I, I think I've seen uh, Kareem Zidane talk about that. He has asked the UFC repeatedly about it, and they just won't respond. Right. I mean, I think it would be like then to the extent that we get the opportunity to ask Dana White questions uh, directly anymore. I think it would be interesting to to ask him and just see what he would say. I'm sure that he would have a. A non-answer. Very nuanced take, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, non-answer prepared. But uh, it is interesting. It is somewhat troubling and uh, inexplicable at this point to me that uh, that the UFC hasn't at least tried to do something to keep its established stars like Fabricio Verdum and some of the other guys that went over there to do seminars and whatnot uh, from trying to associate with that with that sort of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's All Things Considered episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week, I think, to probably get back on a more regular schedule. Uh, if you happen to, happen to be a Patreon subscriber, I guess stick around later this week. We're going to try to figure out how to get the uh, little bit more uh, question and answer stuff to you guys one way or another. We have the technology, right? We do. It exists. It's the out there. The technology exists. We can, we can do it. Um, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So, when we weigh in, I never agreed to this. This listen, weigh in, you're gonna, by the way, you're gonna do the goddamn weigh in. Well, I'm leaning on the towel like Cormier. <laughs> you, do, you do whatever you feel like you need to do. I'm just saying, diet's gonna be important in the days leading up. It's my birthday. Oh. I'm probably gonna show up stuffed with cake and pizza. You're already making excuses. A couple, two, three, four soda pops. Yep.